Amen. Thank you, Aaron, and praise team for reminding us that uh, when we are tempted to despair, as, as all of us have been probably in this last year, all we have to do is look up and see the one who's made an end to all of our shame. Thank you, Brad. End of all of our, our sin. Uh, we look upward, and I think that gets us out of our navel gazing when we're bent in on ourselves, and we look up and we unbend to the grace of God. And that's when we are remembering the hope that we stand on, the cornerstone, that sure foundation of the solid rock. Amen. Uh, thank you for coming today, braving the, uh, the parking lot in the wintry weather. Thanks to all you guys who came out and helped shovel uh, ice and snow yesterday. Uh, my, my back was a little sore this morning getting out of bed, but I appreciate uh, the, the crew that came out and uh, helped clear off this east side here. Uh, like I said, we're ready for this snow to go away, but uh, next week you're in for a real treat. I'm sure you won't have uh, ice and snow. I, I pray uh, not, but uh, Dr. Bill Sherman is going to be bringing the message. Those of y'all that don't know who Dr. Sherman is, he was pastor here at Woodmont from 1968 to 1997 for 30 years, and he's finally retired now uh, at the ripe age of 89, and he's going to be bringing a word to us from Isaiah chapter 6, a great text that I've preached here before, uh, where Isaiah receives the call from the Lord, who will go? And he says, here am I, send me. And I'm excited to hear uh, the wisdom that Dr. Sherman has for us. I'm sure he's probably preached that text many, many times in the past. I'm excited to hear his take on it uh, next week. Uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5 for today, and it's really the, the end of the introductory period. And we're, we're going to see that pattern again that we've seen in these texts throughout this month of hope, this beautiful picture of what could be, followed by the reality of how humans tend to mess it up, how we can't get out of our own way. And God shows us over and over again a better way. He holds up this hope, this beautiful picture, in order to compel us to get out of that cycle of sin and idolatry and navel-gazing. You know, sometimes in our parenting adventures, Morgan and I are in the trenches uh, right now, as some of you are as well, and uh, sometimes we'll tell our kids to, to go do something, you know, go clean your room or go get a shower or whatever it may be, and Every now and then, our, our fallen sinful children will say, no, I don't want to do it. To which I'll reply sometimes, okay, you have two choices. You can do it the easy way, or you can do it the hard way. What's it going to be? The easy way is where you say, yes, sir, and you just go and do it and obey the first time. The hard way is that we give you consequences, and then you end up doing it anyway. You go and clean your room or get a shower, whatever it is that you're supposed to do. Anyway, you pick What's it going to be, the easy way or the hard way? I think Isaiah is holding up a picture of our God as a good, good father who's giving us these options and showing us, do you want the easy way or do you want the hard way? What's it going to be? I'm giving you two choices before you, the easy way or the hard way. What we're going to see today is a metaphor of a vineyard in chapter 5 to describe the easy way. The first seven verses in this chapter give us this beautiful hope of what could be if we choose the easy way. And then we're going to see how the grapes in the vineyard actually turn out as they inevitably take the hard way. Isaiah is going to hold up six clusters of grapes as examples, as lessons for us of what not to do. 
He's going to show us evidence of how God's people responded to the hope, the gracious gift of God that he prepared for them in the first seven chapters and how they have rejected that grace. These are warnings for us not to take the hard way. It's always better to take the easy way. And the point is not just to warn us or to call us out. It's a, it's a loving parent type who wants the kid to be spared from pain and suffering and just take the easy way. He's trying to point us to the grace of God that enables us to live healthy and fruitful lives. So let's start with our hope, okay? God's good plan. We're going to see seven lessons in this text from God's vineyard. And the first thing we're going to look at is the easy way. The first seven verses that show us God's plan for his people, for Israel, and for his new covenant people now, the church. Let's start in verse 1. Let's go to verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God had planted his people, we know, in a land that was flowing with milk and honey. From Canaan, the promised land, the Israelites were to flourish. They were to thrive and grow and become a conduit of God's blessing onto the entire world. God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt, right? He led them to Mount Sinai where he appeared in fire and smoke and he, his glory surrounded the mountain and he gave them the, the holy law, the, the good law that was to make them separate from the world. And then he led them to the promised land and he drove out the mighty Canaanites before them and he gave them the land in order to be fruitful in it. He had been the master gardener, carefully cultivating a beautiful piece of property in order to get it ready to produce a great harvest. Some of you out there are green thumbs. I know Dewey's dahlias are beautiful. I'm not a great gardener. I pretty much most of the plants that we buy end up not making it. But God is the master gardener here who's done everything for this vineyard. In verse 2, it says that he looked for it. He expected it to yield good grapes. But what did he get instead? He got wild grapes, it says. And the Hebrew word for, for wild grapes really implies that they were stinking. There was a stench to these grapes. They weren't just wild grapes. They were rancid grapes. They were ruined and spoiled. How did that happen? How did they become ruined? Uh, any of y'all from Mississippi? I, I learned a new word. I know y'all are back there. I don't know if y'all know this word or not, but I was in college and my friend from Mississippi said, oh, it smells like runt milk. I said, what did you say? He said, runt, it's, it's runt milk. I was like, runt? What is, what is runt milk? He's like, it, it's runt, you know? And I, I didn't know that means ruined. Did y'all know that? Okay, they did. They're both nodding their heads. Yeah, it means ruined, spoiled milk. These grapes are runt. These grapes are runt milk. They are runt grapes. What happened to them? I mean, the owner of the vineyard did everything right. He was a master gardener who prepared meticulously for these grapes. So what went wrong? Verse 3 gives us only two 
possibilities. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is the owner of the vineyard talking now. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why? Why did it yield wild grapes? We know that the master gardener, the owner of the vineyard, removed all of the impediments for growth. He, he cleared the rocks out, all the barriers to producing good fruit. He had dealt with, he had taken care of all those things. It was choice vines on choice land, very fertile soil. He put a watchtower to defend it from enemies. And so what more could he possibly have done for it? And the key question is why? Why did it yield wild grapes? Was it our fault or was it God's fault? Was it the fault of the gardener or was it the fault of the grapes? There are only two choices. If you're like me, uh, you are great at coming up with excuses. I can make excuses all day. I'm so busy. I'm under so much stress. Oh, if only I had a better I'm not saying this, but maybe you say, uh, if I had a better job, if I had more money, if I had a, a better family, if I had more obedient children who don't say no when I tell them to do things, if I had better friends, if I had a better church, if only our church had better preaching, if only our church had better music, if only our church had better children's and youth programs, then we could really live for God then we could really make a difference in God's kingdom. But we make excuses as to why we're not totally sold out making a serious impact as fruitful Christians for the Lord. And what we're saying when we make excuses like that is what we're really saying is that it's God's fault, as if he has not given us what we need in order to live for him. At the root of our excuses, there's a criticism of God, as if he hasn't supplied our every need in order to be fruitful for his kingdom now. I remember our VBS theme uh, from uh, two years ago, I guess was the last time we did VBS, uh, from 2 Peter 1.3. I can hear the song in my head. Uh, 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power, I think it's the Holman version, this is the ESV, but his divine power has granted to us all things, not some things, not a few good things, but all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. We can know him and that he's given us all things for good and godliness who's called us to his own glory and excellence. He's supplied our every need so we are without excuse. If only our church had this, if only it had that, we can't say that anymore. What exactly has God done for us? Let's just take Romans 8 for starters, okay? Beautiful, rich theological chapter. Let me just walk you through it. We're not gonna show it on the screen, but verse one says that God's taken away all of our condemnation by uniting us to Christ. Verse two says that he's forged a new arrangement for us, the new covenant, so that the holiness of the law can be fulfilled in us by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 11 says the Spirit is given as a guarantee of our resurrected life, both now and at 
the second coming of Christ. Verse 15 says we've been adopted into God's holy family, so now we can call him dad, father, a good, good father. Verse 23 says he's given us the hope of a perfect future when we and creation itself will be made new forever. There will be no more cars sliding on ice. It will be a beautiful heaven, new heaven and new earth. Verse 26 says the Spirit helps us in our weakness, even praying for us when we can't even come up with the words to say. Verse 28, you know it, Romans 8, 28, all things work together. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The next verse, verse 29, says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just Romans 8, guys. God has done more for us than we could ever have asked or imagined. He's graciously done these things for us. So the question becomes, what are we doing with it? Is, is his investment in us, for you financial types, is it paying off? Is it a good investment that he's made in us, the deposit of his grace among us? Am I being fruitful for his kingdom? Am I allowing his rich blessings in me to overflow into the lives of others around me? I think sometimes we hide behind the fact that we are God's new covenant people. Well, I go to church. Well, I give some money to the church. Well, I, you know, work at the food pantry every now and then. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm not in prison. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that girl. I don't have, you know, the filthy things on my social media like that person does. I'm a good person. That's not a valid option to hide behind our status as God's people is not an option. Look at verse seven. These are God's people. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. These, these are God's own people, but that does not excuse them from becoming God's fruitful uh, people. It doesn't make them exempt from God's fruitful expectations, it makes them accountable for God's fruitful expectations. Verses five and six tell us that if we don't take full advantage of the amazing opportunities that God has given to us, we will lose them. If you don't use those opportunities, you will lose them. And then it gets worse. Look at the rest of verse seven. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He looked for these good, fruitful things among his people, for justice and righteousness to be produced in his people, but instead, he got defiance and violence. He looked for the signs of his kingdom, for things as it should be, but what he got was rebellion. Is the church today producing the kind of sweet, wholesome fruit that God is looking for? Are we bringing about the kind of evidences of the kingdom of heaven, or are we just like everybody else? Are we more a product of our zip code than we are the word of God? If the answers to those questions are not encouraging, and to be honest, the church in America is not doing a great job despite all the amazing resources that we have. The church continues to decline. There's not a lot of fruitfulness happening with the church in North America. And so we need to take an honest look at why. 
And Isaiah's gonna hold up six lessons for us from the bad bunches of grapes. We're gonna see these six bad bunches as evidence to give us some reasons why God's people can actually become the root fruit that does not bring about the pleasing results that he expects. And the prophet uses the word woe to introduce each bunch, uh, each bad bunch. The word woe is the opposite of the word blessed. Remember the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is he, you know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The word blessed means happy. It means flourishing. It means living a fruitful, abundant life. The word woe is the opposite. It implies sorrow. It implies sadness, lament. It's not just a, a declaration of wrong. It's a, that's a tragedy. Woe involves sorrow and grief. Look at the first bunch of wild grapes in verse 8. We'll do the lesson after we read each bunch. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. You know, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting squeezed out. This was the opposite of justice. <clears throat> Those that could, could, could actually accumulate more just kept accumulating more for themselves, often by exploiting the poor. And that's more than just social injustice, that's idolatry. These people were looking to their stuff to make them happy, to give them a sense of well-being and security and worth and identity. But this leaves them isolated. It says they dwell alone in the midst of the land. They, they're actually alone when they try to accumulate more and more until they're completely cut off. All this accumulation has really given them nothing. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. There's some houses on my street like that. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. These are huge measurements that will only yield this much. Accumulating more and more never satisfies. It never produces what they're looking for it to, to produce. Therefore, the lesson from this first bunch of wild grapes is that reckless ambition yields little. Reckless ambition yields little. That's what we learned from the first bad bunch. Let's keep going. Second bunch. The, the, the bunch of, one commentator calls them stink grapes. The second bunch of stink grapes is in verses 11 and 12. And here the obstacle to the transforming power of God's grace is amusement and self-indulgence. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may, may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and heart, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Do you know what amusement means? Amusement means without thought. These people are so distracted by their own choices, they choose to distract themselves into oblivion. They're choosing to live without thinking in order to refuse to face the facts, in order to not acknowledge the reality of their situation. They're entertaining themselves to death. 
you know, with endless screens and with endless streaming options and capabilities, we worry about our children in this younger generation and even adults too, that are entirely capable of amusing ourselves to death. This bunch is particularly insightful for us. What kinds of people are drawn towards amusement? Well, the gospel reality is that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are spiritual people and there are non-spiritual people. Look at Romans chapter eight, verses five and six. For those who live according to the flesh, non-spiritual people set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, spiritual people, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. People who are not spiritual people are drawn towards amusement, things of the flesh. And people who are spiritual crave the glorious presence of God more and more in their lives. You know, a fleshly approach to life quenches the spirit. It deadens, calluses our hearts to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It only seeks to indulge in the immediate without thinking about the future. The antidote is not spiritual moderation, but indulging in God, binging in God's word, binging in worship, craving more and more of his glory in our lives. That's the antidote to being a non-spiritual person. Ray Ortland says the power of grace lies in deep, repeated gulps of the spirit. And the kind of excess that he's talking about in God doesn't dull our minds, it sharpens <clears throat> our awareness, I need that water, buddy. It's right in front of you. <clears throat> it causes us to miss the obvious. It causes us to miss what God's doing around us. It says here that when we indulge in amusement, that we miss the works of God. I don't want to miss the works of God. So the lesson from the second bunch of grapes is this, that self-indulgence can cause us to miss the obvious. Self-indulgent amusement causes us to miss the obvious. That's what we learned from the second bad bunch of grapes. Let's keep going. Verses 13 to 17, we're gonna skip. He gives these two therefore statements. He matches the two woes with two therefores. Isaiah shows us the practical consequences of the abuse of material things in life. The result of fleshly living is that our souls are never satisfied. Look at verse 13 real quickly. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Though they eat, they are not filled. Though they drink, they still thirst is never quenched. The good life is not found in material self-indulgence, but in spiritual selfless indulgence. The third bunch of wild grapes that Isaiah holds up as a picture of God's people are as animals pulling a, a heavy wagon. Look at verses 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. <clears throat> let the counsel <clears throat> of the, keep going, holy one of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. They're asking God to come and move quickly, but while they're asking that, at the same time, they're pulling the cart of sin with false ropes. 
The ropes that attach us to the cart of sin are lies. It's deceit. They promise us it'll be fun. They promise us it'll be worth it, only to enslave us as oxen pulling a cart. The call here is to throw off the harness and to run free. The problem is that we've grown comfortable with our burden. Even as we go on clinging to our sins, we say things like these people, where's God? What's he doing? Why has he left us? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't God more real to me in my life? That's what verse 19 is about. Our minds blame God. They defy God. They even mock God. Let's throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race with perseverance that's set before us. The lesson from this bunch of grapes is that deliberate sin defies the Holy One. Deliberate open sin is really rebellion against God. It is open defiance. Let's keep going. The fourth bunch of rancid fruit is in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, I'm not going to ask, but I know a lot of you have had COVID who are here today. I was laughing with Evan about how few of our 20-somethings have not gotten COVID uh, in our church. Um, there's, there's a handful of them out there who have not gotten COVID. But one of the, the main symptoms, right, the dead giveaway, we've had a doctor in this church who diagnosed someone as COVID positive because they could not taste or smell. When you cannot taste or smell, you are disoriented. And I hear from my friends who've had COVID, it's terrible. It's one of the worst parts of having COVID because it, it, it is not in touch with reality. For people to confuse sweet for bitter means that they don't know what's going on. What this cluster of grapes is showing us is that many people become this way, not as a result of an illness, but because they've rejected the truth that God himself has instituted in our world. We call things that are good, truth, loyalty, kindness, selflessness, humility. We call those things bad while we praise evil things, selfishness, pride, greed, hedonism. Those are not good things that our society and culture praises. Wild grapes have long ago made a break with the reality of what's good and what's evil. The lesson here is that willful perversion, when you get something twisted, that's what perversion means, Willful perversion rationalizes evil. It says, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's kind of cool. It's actually good. The fifth bunch of runt grapes shows us a spirit of misplaced confidence. Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a famous preacher about what happens when we get so disoriented that we place our confidence in ourselves. Our culture is so adamant about getting us to believe in ourselves. All the curriculum my kids are getting at school says, believe in yourself, you're strong, you can do it. But what if we can't do it alone? What if we need grace? What if we actually need grace? Grace thrives when we feel how urgently we need to be saved from ourselves. Listen to this. Sin is very clever. It always brings forward its reasons, its arguments. Sin knows us so well. 
It knows that we like to think of ourselves as highly intelligent, wise people. So it doesn't just tell us, do this. It gives us reasons for doing it. And they appear to be so wonderful. But the whole point is that in reality, they are specious. That means they appear plausible, but really they're false. They are empty and foolish. The reasoning is always false reasoning. The arguments are always wrong. That's how sin works. That's the nature of it. We become wise in our own eyes only to fall prey to sin. I'm really good at justifying things, but if we can start to see through the plausible arguments of compromise, when we ask God to save us from our brilliant foolishness, then we can avoid the trap of being cart animals pulling the wagon of sin. The lesson here from the fifth bunch is that self-admiration redefines reality and not in a good way. We see something as good that's actually bad because we're looking to ourselves and our own wisdom. Our own self-admiration redefines reality. Finally, the, the sixth bunch, the last bunch of wild grapes, Isaiah connects two things that we might not have put together before. Look at verses 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. What he's doing here, the prophet is connecting the self-indulgent excess with social injustice. Maybe you haven't made that connection before. I, I hadn't either. I think we're all prone to think of sin as something between me and God. It's personal. We tend to read the Bible narcissistically. We look to all the you statements as being about me. But sin is communal. It always has communal societal effects. We can start to see that when we see here that the uh, elite of society, the valiant men, because of their personal excess, the result is social injustice. There's a reason, a reason that people binge on escapism, right? Whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or Netflix or whatever it is, there is a reason that people binge on escapism, trying to get away. They're medicating their despair. But the result is that there's no concern for others because they're so stuck in self-pity that they can't get out of the pit to help anybody else. And it produces injustice. The sixth lesson for us here is that reckless excess produces injustice. That selfish excess of my own escapism actually produces injustice is the, the societal result. The final seven verses in this chapter contain uh, two more therefore phrases. Again, we're not going to read all of it for time's sake, but the first one cuts to the heart of the problem in God's people. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, really, this shows us what the root of the problem is. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, runtness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Remember, verse 7 says that God planted his people and delighted in them. He delighted to plant them. He was excited about his garden 
and he delighted in his people, but they did not delight in him. They despised him. They rejected him. And when despise takes over and delight dies, the Lord is left with no choice. He chastises us as a loving father in order to bring us back to himself. The second, therefore, starting in verse 25, shows how the unstoppable army from Assyria would swoop in from the northeast and would be completely overwhelming to God's people. Isaiah is trying to lovingly remind everyone that God is the architect of history and nothing is going to thwart his good purposes for this world and for his people. Assyria is just an instrument in God's hand, and they prove that God's people have received his grace in vain. What a tragedy. Are we receiving God's grace in vain? These people have squandered it. So again, the question for us today is what are we doing with the grace that God has given to us? In Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, John the Baptist tells us what to do with God's grace. He says in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That could be a Lenten verse to memorize. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're good people. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If we don't use the opportunities of grace that God has given to us, we will lose them. God doesn't care about your, your church attendance or your works of charity. What he wants to see is his investment pay off. Are our lives producing the kind of fruit that God delights in? Are our lives producing a bumper crop of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Left to our own devices, we're never going to be able to produce this fruit in and of ourselves. But Jesus tells us in John 15, I am the true vine. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding in Christ? Maybe the reason that you're not seeing a lot of fruit in your life is because you are not dwelling in the glorious presence of Jesus. Jesus calls to us today, remain in me. Re abide in me as I abide in you and you will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that not only tells us all the beautiful things you've done for us, but it tells us what to do with them, to not squander them, but to bear fruits in keeping with our repentance. God, I've had the opportunity to baptize others as I was baptized and to confess Jesus Christ is Lord which is a statement that we have turned from the things of this world and we have turned to you, O oh God. We have died to ourselves, died like Jesus, and been raised into a whole new kind of life. We have repented of our sin. Now, O oh God, may we bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. 
May we take the incredible, glorious grace that you have lavished on us and use it to produce beautiful fruit for you and for your kingdom, to go the easy way, the way that you've intended, the way you've already cleared out all the impediments for us to go and to use your grace to be a blessing to others. God, forgive us for choosing the hard way over and over again. I know it breaks your heart, just like it breaks our heart as parents when our kids choose the hard way. God, may we allow your grace to fill us completely in such a way that we are on fire for you, sold out for you, and we see every minute of every day as an opportunity to live into your kingdom and to produce the kind of fruit that you are looking for in your people. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. If you are here today and you've never repented, maybe you've never uh, turned from going after your sin, going after the things of this world, and you're ready to make that decision to turn to the Lord today. That's what's called repentance. And we have to do it every day is the thing. But if you've never done that, there's no better time to repent than right now. It's the Lenten season. It's a perfect time to repent and turn to the Lord. Whether you are a Christian or not, if you've never become a Christian and you want to talk about that, I'm going to be down here. I'd love to talk with you about that. You can put our mask on and we'll do our best to distance and uh, that'll be fine. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church. We believe in church membership here and uniting yourself to this body, this particular local body of Christ in order to be a part of the team, part of the family, in order to advance God's kingdom in Green Hills and Nashville and the rest of the world.